You're listening to a podcast from River City Church of Jacksonville, Florida. For more audio and video podcasts, visit rccjacks.com. Good morning. Um, I don't know about you, but I was quite sad to hear of um, Steve, Steve Jobs passing away this week. It was sad, wasn't it? That a man who's um, done incredible things, invented amazing things, passed away. I am, I am a, a geek and, um, and also incredibly cool. So it affected me more than it affected most people. Um, I, he- I heard someone say this week that 10 years ago, 10 years ago, we had Steve Jobs, we had Bob Hope, and we had Johnny Cash. And now we've got no jobs, no hope, and no cash. Uh, uh, oh, that was good. Is that too, it's, it's not too soon to do, do Steve Jobs jokes, no? Not RCC, anyway. Right. Uh, let's pray quickly, and we're going to start. Holy Father, we thank you that, that you have um, given us your presence, that you have been with us already today as we have sought you and worshipped you. And Lord, I pray now that your Holy Spirit would work in us, would lead us and draw us to know more of you day by day, we pray. Amen. What I want to talk about today is um, the promises of God. The promises of God. The promise that he loves us and that he will always love us. The promise that we can know him and we can always know him. But often our experience of life and our experience of, of um, God does not necessarily match up to what we see in Scripture. And what we see in Scripture is that He will always be with us. He will always love us. He will always be close to us. He will always be near us. And yet, our reality, our experience, perhaps there's a gulf between the two. That we don't necessarily feel the presence of God, the love of God, all the time, every day, day by day, moment by moment. I know that's true for me, and I assume it's true for most of you, that we get caught up in doing the mundane things. We get caught up in our lives, that we so often have an experience of life which isn't all of God all the time. But I think his promise to us is that, yes, we can know him. Yes, we can love him. Yes, we can experience his love for us all the time, every day, every moment. I think that is his promise to us. Uh, and we see, we see that most readily in, in, in the promise of milk and honey. The promised land. The land that the kingdom that God has set aside for his people of milk and honey. And you're thinking, oh, well, I don't understand what you're talking about now. Because when I think of milk and honey, I think of a smoothie. Um, or something like that. But we're going to come to that later. And you're going to see that why out of all God's promises, this is, one, this is one of the promises that God makes his people, a land of milk and honey, which you might not be very interested in it right now, but hopefully by where we end up, you'll see that this is one of the greatest things that God has promised us. And that a life of knowing him, of experiencing his love, is not just a possibility, but can become an actuality. It can be something that we actually have day by day, moment by moment, knowing his presence, knowing his love. And we're going to look at a series of truths 
And the first, to, to, to explain about how that's possible, how we can have that. And the first is this. The truth that God is everywhere. God is everywhere. He is, as a, as a good theological word, which is omnipresent, which means always all present. means he is everywhere all the time. He is everywhere all the time. Uh, there's a verse in Jeremiah which shows us this. Am I a God at hand, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do, do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord? And in a psalm that echoes that, Psalm 139, it says, Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. I think many of us are aware in our minds, we are aware theologically of the truth that God is everywhere and he must be everywhere. It's kind of part of his job description that he is omnipresent. That's, you know, all good, all loving, everywhere. Yes, but it's part of the deal. You know, it's part of what it means to be God. And so we understand that that is true. We understand from Scripture, that's what it tells us. And, you know, we see it time and time again in Scripture, like the passage from Jeremiah and that psalm, that God is everywhere, that we cannot flee his presence, that it doesn't matter where we go, he will always be there. Okay? We understand that to be true. But yet, the reality can feel very different. And so, for example, when we come together and gather here on a Sunday, you might feel very keenly that God is present, that God is interested in your life, that God is invested in you, that God wants to know you, wants to love you, wants to bless you. And you may feel that here, or you may feel that in a quiet time, or you may feel that in, a, in another kind of spiritual moment. But... Day to day, moment by moment, when we're at home, when we're at work, when we're at school, when wherever we are, the reality can feel like that perhaps the, the God of work, the God of home, the God of school is perhaps one who's a bit more passive, a God who's a bit less interested, a God who's a bit more distant and harder to know. That, I think, has been my experience, and I know it's, it's probably been, for many of you, your experience too. But God cannot be anything but himself. And so when God is everywhere, it means that it's God who is everywhere. It is the God who is still wanting to love us, still wanting to know us, still wanting to bless us, still wanting to encourage us. And he doesn't want to do that more today than he does tomorrow. He doesn't want to do that more today than he does tomorrow. He doesn't want to do it more now at church than he does when you're changing a diaper or making a meal or filling out a spreadsheet, whatever you do tomorrow. He doesn't want to meet you, know you, love you, encourage you, bless you more now than he does tomorrow. Because God cannot be anything apart from God. He is everywhere and he's always the same. That's the first truth. That's the first truth that helps us bridge this gap between what we understand theologically and what we begin to experience. When we begin to know that this is what God wants for us, day by day, moment by moment, it begins to change things. The second thing is this. 
He's not just near. He's not just everywhere. But he lives in us. He's not just close. He's not just nearby. He lives in us. In Galatians 2.20 it says this. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. You cannot get closer than inside of you. You cannot get closer than being under your skin, in your very being, in every fiber and atom and cell of your body, Christ lives. If you follow him, you love him, he lives in you. He lives in you. He's not just nearby, but he is inside of you. And this wonderful mystery, this incredible truth is so hard for us to grasp. But the more we try, the more we seek it, the more we believe it to be true, the more of him we experience. Because he's there. He's there. In Colossians 1, verse 27, it talks about the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. The riches of the glory of this mystery, this incredible mystery that Christ would live in us. Christ in us, the hope of glory. It's this profound union with God. We have this incredible spiritual symbiosis with God. Words fail to describe it because it's just so mysterious. Jesus said to his disciples, You know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. And often we can kind of, because our reality, because, our, because what we experience doesn't necessarily indicate maybe that we feel like Christ lives in us, that we can kind of think, well, we must get some kind of like different version of God, some kind of miniature version of God, some kind of watered-down, diet, low-fat, unleaded version of God who lives in us. But again, God cannot be anything apart from God. We don't get a diet, watered-down, low-fat version of God who lives in us. We get the perfect, holy, loving, powerful God who lives in us. We get the God who is full of truth, full of life, full of grace, full of mercy, full of justice, living in us. And again, the more we understand that, the more that we seek that, the more that we believe that, the more we begin to experience him moment by moment, day by day, because he's never a distant God far away. He is everywhere, but more than that, he's inside of us. He lives in us. His spirit is dwelling in us. And the more we understand that reality, the more experience of God that we have. The more of that mystery we dwell upon, the more we are compelled to worship and to connect and to know him. There's a third truth that helps us bridge that gap between what we understand theologically and what we experience in reality. And that's this, and that's nothing can separate us from his love. In this amazing verse that Paul writes to the Romans, it says this, For I am sure that neither death nor life, 
nor angels, nor rulers, it says demons in some other translations, nor angels, nor demons, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I think the point Paul is trying to make is that nothing can separate us from the love of God. He kind of rams this home. He makes it plain and clear there is nothing in heaven and earth that will separate you from the love of God. There's nothing in hell that will separate you from the love of God. There is nothing that will separate you from the love of God. And we know that to be true in our minds. But our reality is so often feels different to that. Right? And I think often we attribute this gulf between what we understand in our minds and what we experience in our lives, I think we attribute that gulf to perhaps our sin or perhaps to like us getting it wrong or perhaps to us not being a very good Christian or, or perhaps to us misunderstanding or just being distracted. Or we, we attribute the fact that we feel separated from God's love sometimes to those things. But the truth is so different. The truth is nothing can separate us from the love of God. So I decided to draw up a little list of things that can't separate us from the love of God. Okay? This is my little list. There's plenty more, but these are just the ones that I thought of. First, sin. Sin cannot separate us from the love of God. Fear, shame, pride. They cannot separate us from the love of God. Time, distance cannot separate us from the love of God. Our emotions, our mental illness and strife, Our depression, our sickness, our injury cannot separate us from the love of God. Our grief, our failure, our inadequacy, our self-doubt, our loneliness cannot separate us from the love of God. Our poverty, our bankruptcy, our plain stupidity cannot separate us from the love of God. I was looking at you, yeah. cannot separate us from the love of God. Our insecurities, our boredom, our apathy, our cynicism cannot separate us from the love of God. Money cannot separate us from the love of God. Consumerism, addictions cannot separate us from the love of God. Broken relationships cannot separate us from the love of God. Our own immaturity and naivety cannot separate us from the love of God. If you're anything like me, you've experienced most of those or a lot of those and in your experience experiencing those things you may like I have felt separated from the love of God felt separated from the love of God but that is not the truth and what we need to do is we need to overcome the feelings of separation that those things bring and when all those things that I just listed enter into our lives and you know, it may be different things for you, but I imagine some of those are for you. So often we let the feelings that those things bring to our lives, of feeling not loved, of feeling not cared for, of feeling distant from God, we allow those feelings to trump the truth. But the truth remains. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. And when we're in the middle of those things, 
when we're in the middle of those life situations, whatever they were for you, there's choice there. We can either feel ashamed, we can either try and run from God, we can either try and blame Him, or we can believe the truth that is said in Jeremiah and in those Psalms that there is nowhere we can flee from Him. And because there is nowhere we can flee from Him, we might as well flee towards Him. We might as well run towards Him with those things, with our sin, with our fear, with our shame, with our pride, with our inadequacy, with our grief, with our pain, with our suffering, with our problems. We cannot flee from Him, so we may as well flee towards Him, which is exactly what He wants. He wants to be near us. He wants to know us. He wants to know you tomorrow the same that he does today. He wants to love you and bless you and encourage you as much tomorrow as he does today. And there's a fourth promise that I mentioned earlier, and this is the promise that God gives his people. When the Israelites are enslaved in Egypt, God speaks to his people and says, in, in Exodus 3.17, it says, I have promised to bring you out of your misery. Yeah, you can put it up. That's allowed. And I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction or the misery of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. I've got those all right. A land flowing with milk and honey. God has promised his people a kingdom filled with milk and honey. I've heard people speak on this passage before. And, and what people usually say when they speak about this passage is that is a picture of abundance. And what God is saying to his people is, I'm going to take you out of misery, out of slavery, and I'm just going to give you a lot. I'm going to give you abundance. I'm going to give you loads. And that is absolutely true. That is absolutely true. But there, there are subtleties in the imagery. Why did God say milk and honey? Why not biscuits and champagne? Cookies and ice cream? You know, why milk and honey? And God picked those things deliberately. Because the imagery of those things speaks of who he is and what he has for us. The kingdom, the life he has set aside for us. But for us in the 21st century, we maybe miss some of that imagery. We maybe miss some of the imagery which is so obvious to an ancient person, to, to the Israelites 4,000 years ago, traveling through the desert, trying to get to a promised land. The imagery of these things would have been clear as day. But to us, we, kind of, we view them through our 21st century lens. And if, if you're like me, when you think of milk, you think of a carton in a fridge that came from a cow. Right? That's what milk is to, to you and to I. Milk is, or if you're really, you know, progressive, you might have goat's milk or something like that. But to you and to us, milk so often means a carton in a fridge that came from a cow. But when you're traveling for 40 years in the desert, there ain't many places to plug your fridge in. <laughs> to, to the ancient people, the first thing they thought of in terms of milk wouldn't have been cows. It wouldn't have been that kind of milk. It would have been a mother's milk. 
It would have been a mother's milk. It would have been the first thing that, they, that would have come to mind. And if you've had a baby in the last 20 years, then, then those at the hospital would have told you, I'm sure, that the best thing for your baby is the mother's milk. And formula is wonderful, and formula is incredible, and all that stuff. But scientifically, the best thing for a baby is a mother's milk. Because it has all the nutrition that a baby needs. It will meet every thirst, every hunger, and it will carry all the nutrition that a baby needs to grow and get a good start in life. And that's what they tell us, isn't it, at the hospital when we have babies. So this land of milk and honey is a a land where everything we need will be provided for us. Our every thirst, our every hunger will be met. But when we're at the hospital and they tell us that this is a good thing for our baby, it's not just the nutritional benefits, it's the relational benefits. And so the picture of milk, of a mother's milk, is not just one of nutrition, but is one of parental intimacy, of closeness, of bonding, of relationship. The image of milk The kingdom that God has set aside for us is of everything we need, every thirst and hunger met in knowing him and being close to him. If I was Antley, I would show an inappropriate picture of a mother feeding. And we're all grateful that I'm not Antley. Me especially. But this wonderful intimacy that a mother has with a newborn baby represents the kind of intimacy we were made for with our father, the closeness, the dependence, the bonding. When we think of milk, we think of cows and cartons and fridges. But the imagery is so much more rich than that. And it's the same for honey. Now, I think we all understand that honey's sweet, right? There's no one here denying that honey's not sweet. I can safely say that. So we all know that. We all know that honey is sweet. And of course, that's what they would have thought too. That 4,000 years ago, they would have thought, yes, honey's sweet. We know that. But for us, we have candy bars. We have you know, cookies. We have cakes. Oh, good cakes. We have donuts. Really good donuts. And so for us, sweet is common. Sweet is everything. You know, sweet is everywhere. We pack sugar into absolutely anything we can possibly find to pack sugar into. But for an ancient person, honey was, if you were living in the desert, honey was pretty much the only sweet thing you were ever going to taste, ever going to eat. There was no sugar. There was no Hershey bars. There was honey. And so, The honey compared to everything else you had ever eaten in your whole life was just so sweet, so good. And that's the imagery we miss. Is that the land and the life that God has prepared for us is not just provision of everything we need, but is intimacy with him. And that intimacy is the sweetest thing we will ever taste. Knowing him closely, knowing him 
experiencing his love is the sweetest thing we will ever taste. And that would have been clear 4,000 years ago, but perhaps isn't so clear to us now. Honey's just, you know, you choose honey or syrup or chocolate sauce. But for them, it would have been obvious. Honey is the sweetest thing you will ever have. The intimacy with God is the sweetest thing you will ever have. But there's another little part to this imagery that we totally miss. And that is that honey is the only food in nature that will never spoil. It will never go bad. It will never go off. Honey is the only food in all of nature that never spoils. Early in the last century when explorers entered the pyramids for the first time, they found in there 4,000-year-old edible honey. I wouldn't want it to be the dude who tried it. But, <laughs> but it was edible. It never spoils. It never goes off. So this is where it starts to come together. And I was chatting to someone in the break, and, and I hadn't realized this, but we know now it's true, is that honey also has these incredible healing properties as well. It's one of the purest forms of food you, that exists on the planet, and it has some healing properties and potential too. Which just adds to it. So the land of milk and honey, the life God has promised for us, the kingdom God has promised for us is like this. Every need is met in him. Every need is met in intimacy with him. And that intimacy is the sweetest thing we will ever have. And it will never spoil, it will never go off, it will never go bad. It will stay the same forever. That is the life God has set aside for us. That is the kingdom he has created for us, his people. That is his promise to us. That is his promise to us. In Song of Songs, chapter 4, it says this. Your lips drop sweetness as the honeycomb, my bride. Milk and honey are under your tongue. Again, in Scripture, it uses this imagery of honey and milk to describe something perfect, something sweet, something intimate. This is his wonderful promise to us. But how do we go about making the promises of God a reality for us? Not just knowing that they're a promise to us, but receiving that promise. Living in that way. Experiencing God in that sweet, intimate way, moment by moment, day by day. There's an amazing verse in 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 1 that speaks of the promises of God. And this is what it says. For all the promises of God find their yes in him, in Christ. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. 
And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. All the promises of God, all the promises of God, every promise he has made upon your life, all the promises he has made of what a life with him is meant to be and what we can have, find their yes in him, in Christ. In what Christ did on the cross and in rising again, those things are God's yes to those promises. I made those promises and now I say yes. Through Jesus, I say yes. But we are left then with a choice. He says yes, but we need to say amen. We need to say amen to those promises. And so when, when I was talking about those list of things, that, that list of things that make us feel like we're separated from God, it's in those moments, in those times, that we say, okay, I know that the yes is there in you, Jesus. I know that every promise you have made is yes in you. And I say, amen. Amen. I will experience your love. I will experience your tenderness. I will experience the sweetness. And I know that all I need is in you. It's in that amen. As we say amen to that, I believe that. That we experience it. That we experience his love. That we experience it. That we move from not just knowing it in our heads, not just understanding the theological reality, but choosing moment by moment, day by day, to experience that love, that same God who is always the same, who is always there, who lives in us. And it's in those most bitter moments of our lives that we need that sweetness most to flavor our lives, to give it the sweetness that we are entitled to and that we can have at any point forever because nothing can separate us from the love of God. Why don't we stand?